But Amen family, uh, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. The loving kindnesses of the Lord is better than life. And um, we sing that and, and we embrace that this morning. Uh, we're at the time in our service where we will continue worshiping the Lord by now letting him speak to us. Uh, we've prayed, we've sang, we've given, and uh, something beautiful happens in worship. God also engages us and he uh, best engages us by his word. He speaks to us. And so uh, we're going to read and then I'm going to pray and we'll jump right in. Our passage this morning picks up where we left off last week. Uh, uh, Jake, uh, Isaac and Rebecca uh, were married when Isaac was 40. And for 20 years, uh, they were barren. She was infertile. And he prayed for her and over her and with her for 20 years. And the Lord eventually answered that prayer. And um, our passage this morning picks up when uh, she gives birth. And so we're going to read Genesis 25. We're going to begin in verse 24 and read to the end of the chapter. And when Rebecca's days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. And so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, which means he takes by the heel. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And so he said to Jacob, let me eat some of the red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was also called Edom, which means red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. In this way, Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. And uh, our prayer is simple. Uh, Father, speak to us. Remind us again of your kindness and remind us, Lord, of what it means to respond. Lord, how can we keep our ways pure by meditating uh, upon your word? And so, Father, where we are crooked, uh, straighten us out. And where we are striving, change the posture of our hands to be recipients of your matchless grace. Where our hearts are hardened, we'll prick them and make them soft again to the wonders of Jesus. Jesus says that all of the law and all of the prophets and all of the writings and all of the Psalms are about him. And so even as we read this passage about Jacob and Isaac and Esau and Rebecca, Father, uh, is also about your son and what you've done for us in him. May we see that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've entitled our, our time in the Word this morning, A Beautiful Birthright Graciously Given uh, to Struggling People. So um, I hope there are no Pittsburgh Steelers fans in the room. Okay, if we are, you will not like this introduction. 
Oh, why are you talking to me? I can search the web for. No, see? There you go. I, I'm so sorry. I normally had this thing off. There we go. So a couple weeks ago, the Pittsburgh Steelers uh, made the, 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 the lead story of um, Stephen A. Smith's uh, morning tirade on ESPN. And I didn't see the game. And so I was kind of working out that Monday morning and, and saw the highlights. But there was a Pittsburgh Steelers wide receiver. And I got to explain the play before I talk about what happened. So in football, you have a quarterback. They're the ones who throw the ball. They also receive the ball from the center. Now, the, there, there are two types of plays. You have a running play, and that's when the quarterback will hand the ball off to the running back, and that person will run the ball. And you have a passing play, and that's when they, hike, they, they receive the ball and they throw. Well, the guys who catch the ball, it's called a wide receiver. He's running a route to catch the ball. Now, here's the thing. On running plays, the wide receiver usually will not run a route. He becomes a blocker. And your goal is to block for the running back who receives the ball. So this was a running play where the running back was given the ball by the quarterback of the Steelers. And the camera zooms in on a wide receiver. And the wide receiver does not block. He just kind of puts his hand down. And, and it surprises the Cincinnati Bengals because the, the guy's like, what are you doing? Like, he's confused. And then the running back actually runs towards his side and he fumbles. And so now the ball is on the ground and the, and the wide receiver for the Steelers, he looks at it and he does nothing. And then the Bengals pick up the ball and start running the other way 30 yards. And the wide receiver for the Steelers just looks and this guy is running the other way. And so commentators were just like, what was he doing? One commentator went so far as to say, has he forgotten that this is football? That the game is about the ball. You don't get points unless the ball crosses the goal line. You don't get points unless the ball goes through the upright. Teams who usually win will have the possession of the ball more time than the other team. They will run more plays than the other team to play football. It's about the ball. Now, this is to be contrasted with a game in 2020. And this is when the Giants played the Washington Commanders. And imagine the scene. On one play, the ball is fumbled six times. Now, here's what this means. This means that I'm running the ball and somehow you poke it out. Well, your team picks it up and you run this way. Well, somebody on my team tackles you and we pick it up. And this goes back and forward for six times. It's the most times, the most fumbles in one game. And the contrast is night and day. The guy for the Steelers is indifferent. He doesn't care. He's detached. He's removed. He's not in the game. Contrast that with the other players, they're jumping, they're tackling, they're poking, they're pulling, they're blocking, they're nudging, they're diving because they understand to get the ball is the game. Now you're like, what in the world does this have to do with our passage? <laughs> Everything. This, this morning, we're going to hear about something called the birthright. 
And the birthright for a Jew is like the football in a game. It's like water for a fish. It is so important in the kingdom of God that those who have it have everything and those without it have nothing. And we're going to meet somebody in the text. He's like the Pittsburgh Steelers wide receiver. The birthright is like right next to you. And you're just letting it go. You don't care. You are not engaged. And we're going to meet somebody who's playing like those giants and those commanders. Like, I'll take that. Give me that. I'll trip you up. I'll break your ankle to get that. It's that important. And we're going to meet Esau, who despises his birthright. He cares nothing about it. And you're going to meet Jacob. Jacob is like, no, bro, you got to give me that. That's mine. I want it. And here's what we're going to see, that, that, that there is indifference and there is striving and there is conflict. And in the end, God's whole plan, you don't have to strive. I'm going to graciously give you this. If we can walk out of here this morning understanding that God's plan from the beginning of time was to give us all struggling people the birthright and the rights of a firstborn son, man, we will walk out of here on cloud nine because it's free. Now, what I want to do is, is look at the text. And the first thing I want us to think about is an important conflict that you are in the throes of. That's the first thing, conflict, an important conflict. So you've probably heard the phrase, they fight like cats and dogs, right? And we use that, right, to, 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 to talk about how two people fight, but if you've really seen a cat and a dog fight, then you know what I'm talking about. I've seen a dog kill a cat and just kind of bite it and just kind of back and forth, back and forth, and I won't tell you what else we saw, but. And I've also seen the other way, where this cat was the last cat that a dog will mess with. They kind of hunch up on their back and them claws come out and that dog ain't messing with no more cats. I can assure you of that. And I've seen in the middle where you're walking your dog and it gets off the leash and it sees a cat and it chases the cat and the cat runs up a tree or runs up on a roof or jumps a fence. We use that metaphor because those two animals are pre-programmed. They come here unless they've been socialized together to fight. Well, guess what? God told Rebecca, your sons are going to be like cats and dogs. They're going to come here fighting. As a matter of fact, look at verse 22 of last week's text. The children struggled together within her. That's the first thing. And she's pregnant. And she says, Lord, what is this? I imagine her saying, Lord, I know you told Adam and Eve and Satan that that cursedness is coming through childbearing and child rearing. And we will give birth and it will be painful. But Lord, this is like way too much. What in the world is going on? And God says, all right, baby, I got you. You got twins. That's why it's hurting you. But notice what else he says. 
Two nations are in your womb, and from two peoples from within you shall be divided. And so what is God doing? God is letting her know that, that these two brothers, these twins, they're locked in an age-old conflict. And think about it. It begins in utero. They're struggling inside of her womb before they're even born. And then look at what happens when they're born. The time drew near for her to give birth. And this probably isn't Rebecca who's witnessing this. This is before epidurals, before all the kind of medicine we have right now. So this is probably a midwife or maybe even Isaac who's watching these children be born. And they notice something. This first kid comes out and he's hairy and he's also red or he has he's covered in red hair. And so they name him or he is named Esau and, and, and hair and, and Esau. They, they share kind of the same root for the Hebrew word. But then they notice something else. You know, you, you, you might know twins and twins might say, yeah, I'm 50 seconds later. or I'm three minutes later that these twins, they're only each other. That that as the first one, Esau's coming out, whoever is watching this notices that a hand is wrapped around the heel of the first one. And they're like, what in the world? Are they not only struggling in your womb? Are they fighting coming out of the womb? Who's going to come out first? And so they name the second born Jacob, which means he cheats or he grabs by the heel. And so that, that, that's pretty easy naming. I name you hair and I name you heel. Hair and heel, right? Hair grabs heel. Heel comes. I, I mean, that, that's the naming. So they're fighting in utero. They're fighting when they're born. And then you get our passage this morning. We discover that the first one is the stronger one. Esau was a hunter, a man of the field. Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. We even discover which one Isaac loves most. Verse 28, Isaac loved Esau. Why? Because of the food that Esau brought him. But Rebekah loved Jacob, the quiet tent dwelling one. And we see that this plan that's enacted here to take something from Esau is also conflict. And the conflict doesn't stop. In Genesis chapter 27, that Esau has enough. Esau doesn't get the final blessing. Rebecca's going to work with a plan to make sure that the younger gets the blessing. And Esau says, boy, I'm going to put you on a shirt. I'm going to pull a cane on you. And Jacob ends up running for his life. And we think that's the last time he saw his mother. We have no evidence in scripture that he saw her again. And what if I told you that even when they died, these boys fought in death? What do you mean? Turn over to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers 20, verse 14 through 21. Let me set the stage. This is some 500 years after the events take place here. Now, we know that Jacob is renamed Israel and that 
because of a famine, he goes into Egypt because Joseph is the second born. I mean, the, Joseph is second in command. And we know that Jacob, who's now named Israel, goes into Egypt and they go in as 70 people. He dies and then he's buried. And then 430 years somewhat later, the Lord raises up Moses to bring the people of Israel out. And they're not a small nation anymore. They're a mighty nation right now. Now, what happens to Esau's people? Well, notice in our text, look at verse uh, 30, that Esau was also called Edom. So Jacob had two names, Jacob and then Israel. Esau had two names. He was named Jacob. And then because of this very incident, he was also called Edom, which means red people. Now, what happened to Esau's line later? They became the Edomites. And so now you have the Israelites who were Jacob's folk and you have the Edomites who are Esau's folk. And notice what happens in our in, in Exodus, I mean, in Exodus numbers, I mean, numbers 20. In numbers 20, Moses has been delivered and Moses and the people of God are walking in the wilderness and they get to the king of Edom. And notice what it says in verse 14. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. And notice what Moses says. Thus says your brother Israel. Y'all got to underline that. Moses didn't call him. Thus says the people. He says, we your brother. Thus says your brother Israel. You know the hardship that we've gone through. You know how Pharaoh treated us. You know that the Lord delivered us. And now please, verse 17, let us pass through your land and we will not pass through the field or the vineyard or drink water from a well. Let us go to the king's highway. We will not turn to the right or the left. But look at what Edom says, the king of the Edomites. You shall not pass through. Lest I come out with you against, against a sword with you. And then Moses says, look, if we get some water, then we'll pay for it for us and our livestock. And look at verse 20. But he said, you shall not pass. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with strong force. And thus the Edomites refused to give Israel passage through the territory. Here's something that we got to remember. Who were the first recipients of the book of Genesis? It's not you and I. The first recipients of the book of Genesis were the Israelites who had been delivered out of Egypt, about to go into the promised land. And they would have been asking, Moses, why do they treat us like Scar and the Lion King? Why won't they reach down and save us and help us? Why are they putting their claws in us and not letting us get food and not letting us pass through? And Moses is going to say, because of this. Now, do you see the conflict in the womb, in birth, in the home, in adulthood? Even when they're dead, they're fighting. Scholars call this seed theology. 
Here's what I mean. They go all the way back to Genesis where God promises that the seed of the woman will come. And from this line of the woman will come the righteous ones and will come the Messiah. And it also embraces this truth that there's going to be the seed of the serpent. The same serpent who deceived Adam and Eve is going to have people who prefer darkness, who hate the light like he hates the light. He's going to have minions and demons who will do his bidding to interrogate and, and persecute the people of God. And what you see unfolding in scripture is this conflict. This is why Pharaoh wants to crush the Israelites. It's why Herod wants to kill all the Hebrew boys. It's why the nations want to plunder Israel. And, and sometimes, saints, this happens in your own home, right? This is why Jesus says there will be wheat and there will be what? Tear. There will be those who walk in the light and those who prefer the darkness. This is why in the book of Revelation, the serpent who is now a dragon wants to eat the child that is born, but that child is protected. This is hostility. An enmity that is going on between those of us who walk in the light, the saints, and those of us who prefer darkness, as Jackie Hill Perry says, the ain'ts. And this is why Christians get persecuted. And Christians are hated in our workplace. Why Christians are hated by the world. You see, I think what, what, what Moses is doing here is reminding you and I that in the same way that these boys are fighting, we're in that conflict as well. We're not going to be loved by this world. But this passage also says more. It also says that though we are in the light, it's so easy to walk in the darkness. Did you notice Isaac's behavior here? He loves one son because this son gives him food. Do you see how Rebecca is, is posturing and how they're behaving? It's even a reminder that sometimes Christians will harm other Christians. It's as if Moses is saying, don't be surprised by the suffering in the world that happens to you. And don't be surprised by the suffering you inflict upon others. This is a war, which moves us to our second point, that this passage really is about the birthright, the beautiful birthright that's at the center of the conflict. Now, when we hear birthright, I'm, I'm going to be honest with y'all. It just don't do none for me. I, it, uh, like, I, I had to kind of do a lot of reading to kind of figure out, okay, tell me about this birthright. And this is the first time it's used in the Bible. And we realize that the Bible is not an American book. And so it's going to introduce non-American things uh, that carry a spiritual weight. It's not a modern book. It's going to introduce some ancient things that we have to latch on to. And so how do we know that the birthright is at the center of all of this? 
Dr. John Currett was my um, Hebrew professor at RTS, and he's written a book on, on Genesis. And he says, look, before word processors, right, right now, I, I can show you my sermon, and my illustrations are, are I, I label them blue. And if I, my big points, I make them black, and I make them um, really big so I can kind of see the big points. That if, b- before word processing, they didn't do that. The way that they would do emphases would be through grammatical things. You with me? So there's a symmetry of this text. And so notice what introduced. It's about food. Verse 29 and 30. It's about food. Esau is hungry. He thinks he's about to die. He comes in and Jacob is cooking stew. Food. So Esau wants food. But notice how the movement. Esau wants food. But what Jacob wants is the birthright. Right. So that's tier two. Well, then notice the middle. Jacob presents a plan to get the birthright, the food you want and the birthright I want. We can just do a swap. And that's at the center of the text. And then notice how it ends. It comes back out. That birthright. Swear to me that you'll give it to me. And then the text ends and it ends with food. Esau got the food. Esau sat down. Esau ate. He gulped it down. He got up and left. And therefore, he despised his birthright. So if you were a Hebrew reading this, you knew what all of this was about. Because at the center of the text, it's the birthright. Now, what is the birthright? Bruce Walkie and Kathy Fredericks. uh, Kathy was Bruce Walkie's teaching assistant who has Uh, an English degree. And so together they wrote this commentary and he says these five things and they're important. First, the birthright refers to the rights of the firstborn son. Second, the, 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 the firstborn son with the birthright holds the position of honor and privilege in the stat in the family. Third, the firstborn has the right to become the next leader of the family. And this makes perfect sense. We hear very little about Esau in the Bible. Right. Who we hear about is Jacob, whose name becomes Israel. And we hear everything about the people of Israel. And so we're we're seeing it enacted in the Bible that the one who gets the birthright, the one who has the position of leader in the family, it's actually Jacob. And then fourth, the firstborn received a double portion of the father's inheritance, Deuteronomy 21. And so they use this example. If a man has nine sons, all right, nine, and the firstborn son gets a double portion. So he, do, he gets these two. So now you got eight sons left, but these eight sons have to divide the father's estate by seven now. Because the firstborn is going to get double. He's going to get more. They go on to say that if you had twins, then the, the one with the birthright gets everything and the other son gets nothing, even though one other commentator says, no, in the event of twins, the father's estate was divided by three and the older twin got two thirds and the younger twin got one third because that you can get double that way. Look, but that's not the most important thing about this birthright here. For Abraham's offspring the one who gets the birthright gets the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. He is the one who gets the Messiah 
in his lineage. He is the one who gets the promises that God made to Abraham. Now you see why this family is in uproar. Isaac, the dad, thinks that Esau should be the natural heir. Look at him. He's strong. Look at him. He knows how to hunt. Look at him. If somebody fights against us, I'm going to stick Esau on him. Not the tent. Not, 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 not little Jacob who likes to stay in the house. Do I want to leave my estate to him? Right? Isaac sounds more like Adam who desired the fruit more than God. He looks more like the people in Noah's day who were eating and drinking and giving into marriage and then judgment came. And then Rachel, she's passive here. All we know is that she loved Jacob more, but then we will later see in, in chapter 27 that she's gonna deceive her own blind husband. Esau, he doesn't care about the birthright. He is so short-sighted. He's driven by his passions. He's saying, I don't need those promises of Abraham. I can fend for myself. I don't need God's presence. I'm satisfied by worshiping created things such as food and the hunt and women. And yes, I'm going to say women. Now, how do you know? Turn over to Genesis 26 verses 34 and 35. And I want to show it to you. Look at Genesis 26, 34 and 35. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife. And Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. <laughs> Do y'all hear that? <laughs> this is why the author of Hebrews in our call to worship, he says, see to it that you're not sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now piece it all together. When you go eat food, that meal lasts maybe, maybe three hours. And sex between one man and one woman in the confines of marriage, it's good. But it don't last 10 days. Right? You hear what the Bible is saying? Don't be like Esau. That you will trade eternal beauties and eternal riches and eternal joy for momentary fleeting pleasure. That's a bad swap. And that's why the author of Hebrews says, don't be sexually immoral because that's what we're doing when we're sexually immoral. We're chasing and craving something that's going to give us momentary pleasure. And we're trading the riches and the beauties and the fullnesses of God's glories to us in Jesus. This is Esau's MO. And then you get Jacob. He's not innocent here. While scripture never condemns him for what he does, we know his ways are underhanded and deceitful. He will not wait to see how God will do what God just promised. What he should have said is that, God, I don't know how you're going to give me the birthright, but I trust you and I wait. I trust you and I wait just like my mama and daddy did when they prayed for me. 
I trust you and I wait and I pray. Not Jacob. Jacob seizes the opportunity. He hits his brother when he's down. He seizes the moment. If Jacob had theme music, it would be the lyrics from a Jay-Z song. I'm a hustler, baby. I sell ice in the winter. I'll sell water to a well. I was born to dictate, never follow orders. I will not lose. Put me anywhere on God's green earth. I'm going to triple my worth. Doesn't that sound like Jacob's posture? And beloved, if we're honest, don't we have a little bit of all of this in us? Don't we know what it's like to chase the fleeting things of this world? To engage in pornography. To engage in ungodly sexual behavior. And it satisfies for a minute and it leaves a hole in our hearts. Don't we know what it's like to think that we don't need God or the provision of God or the protection of God that I can trust in my own wisdom, my own power, my own might. I'm here to tell you that the scriptures call you out of that. They call you to come to the one who has pleasures at his right hand forevermore. And don't we know what it's like to be like Isaac, to use our children, to orient our love on them because of how they bless us and make us look. And don't we know that we can be like Jacob here? Where we have a wake of people that we've deceived and twisted because we choose not to wait. We're sneaky little bullies posturing and getting our way in these spaces. This is a reminder, beloved, that we're called to repent. We're called not to say, look at how bad they were, but look at them in me. Which moves us to the last point. All of them are forgetting one major thing, that the birthright and the blessings of it were never meant to be earned. God's plan from the beginning was to graciously give that birthright and all of its privileges to struggling people who receive it. So after Trip was born, you've heard me say this before, uh, we wanted more children. When we bought our house, we got four bedrooms upstairs. And so we said, look, we want to fill them up. We want kids in every room. And the Lord gave us two. And after Trip was born, uh, we had four miscarriages. And they were back to back to back to back. And at that point, uh, it was hard. And, and, and some of you in the room walked with my wife. You walked with us. And we're thankful. But then we began to say, Lord, we just felt like you, we felt like you were telling us like more. And so we began to meet with an adoption agency. <laughs> and again, we reached out to some of you who have, who have adopted and you sat down with us. And, and so we went and we 
did the paperwork and we had the first consultation and man, they was like all in our business. <laughs> how much money you make? Why you wouldn't know how much money I make, right? <laughs> what y'all do for a living? And where do you live? And how many bedrooms are in your house? And how many kids do you have? And what kind of marriage do you have? And do you go to counseling? And how long have you been married? And will the kid have its own room? Or will they be sharing room with other kids? And what's the ages of your kids? And we need to do a criminal background check. Can we do that? And we need some references. And what church do you go to? Like they were like all in our business. And so we were kind of complying. And we okay, we said, okay, we're gonna keep praying on this. And so finally, like we just felt like the Lord wasn't calling us to adopt. And it wasn't because of any of that. It was because at the time when this was going on, we had a student from Belize who was staying in our room upstairs. <laughs> and she stayed about a year and then she moved out and another student got robbed gunpoint and was afraid to go home, got robbed in his driveway and put in his car and taken to an ATM. And he called, he said, I, I, I can't go back home. And so we, okay, you, you come on, move in next. And then he got situated and another student was homeless. And so he stayed with us for a year. And then another student who was from Ethiopia, who used to play guitar here, Thomas, he graduated and he didn't have anywhere to go for the first year. And okay, Thomas, you got the room next. And so for us, we just felt like, okay, Lord, you're answering this prayer this way. You're giving us these grown kids to put in our houses. But here's the thing about those questions that the adoption agency were pressing into. What they really were getting at is, can you provide a forever place for this child? Can you provide for this child glasses, a bed, clothes? Can you protect this child from them and from other people? Will your family be a people that will come alongside and love this child? And will you give them God, the presence of God? That's what they were after, saints. Now, here's the question for you. We know children need those things. Presence, provision, protection, people in a home. Is that not core needs of us all? Don't we all need a forever home? Don't we all as adults need faithful presence of God? Don't we all need safety that if we get cancer, that, that no one can snatch us from the hand of God? Don't we need provision that we wake up and, and we start knowing that God delights to give us the kingdom? Don't we want his safety and his protection from everything? You see, here's the thing. We make the mistake to think that only children need that. We all need that. And the hard thing about growing up is our own illusion of independence. We think because we go to work that we're providing for us. 
We think because we carry our guns that we're saving us. And we think because we have a home that we're protecting us. And here's what God does to an old man named Abraham. He says, hey, leave your father's house and follow me. And I'm going to give you a place. And I'm going to give you protection. That if somebody messes with you, I curse them. And I'm going to make sure you have provision. I'm not going to let you die in a famine. I'm going to provide. And I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And I'm going to give you a people. I'm going to give you a family who's not going to treat you like the Edomites. That when you are on your lowest place, they're going to say, come in and, and pull up a chair and have a meal. And I'm going to give you me, my presence. Kids don't only need that. We do. And here's the mistake they were making in the passage. They thought that the blessings of the birthright and the promises to Abraham had to be seized and grabbed and kept and fought for. And what they were missing is that God's plan from the beginning was to graciously give it to everybody. You don't have to fight for it. I give it and I'm not scarce in my giving. You see, when God chooses to give the second born, namely Jacob, the privileges of the firstborn, when he chooses to give the twister and the grabber of the heels, the one that when it should have went to the firstborn, do you know what God is saying to you? He's actually saying, I delight to give the birthright to broken people, to struggling people, to people who by nature are not true firstborns. We know who the true firstborn is, right? And it's not either one of these dudes. The true firstborn of God is Jesus. And what God is doing in Jesus is sending you a better Jacob. A better Esau. Esau despises the birthright. Esau chooses the fleeting pleasures of the world and spurns the birthright. Jesus is better. He refuses the fleeting pleasures of the world to go to a cross for you. Jacob is twisted and conniving and looking out for himself. And Jesus is untwisted and wants to look out for you. Jacob is a heel grabber. Jesus is a heel giver. And you know what I'm talking about. What was the first presentation of the gospel in the Bible? I will send a son and he will crush the head of the serpent, but you will bruise his heel. And you see Jacob grabbing a heel and then you see Jesus getting on a cross saying, I'm not grabbing the heel. Nail me to a cross and pierce my heel so that I can give the blessing away. And that's why the author of Hebrews says something amazing. Don't be like Esau. He says, you have come to New Jerusalem. You've come to the place. You've come to God. He's your father and your king. 
and you are enrolled in the assembly of the firstborn. That's an oxymoron. How can you have a crowd of firstborns? There's only one true firstborn. But when we trust in Jesus, he makes us all firstborns. Men and women. And guess what we have access to? Those things that we most deeply need. In Jesus, saints, and I can say this to you with all sincerity. You have a forever home. You're going to the new Jerusalem. It's coming. In Jesus, you have absolute protection. Nothing will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ. God is for you. What can man do to you? In Jesus, you have protection. When you get that cancer diagnosis and tears fall, tears of joy follow because you know to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. In Jesus, you have provision. Jesus says, look at the lilies of the field. Look at the birds of the air. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, your father in heaven loves you more, so much more than them. He says he will give you your daily bread. And that's not a promise that things are going to always be balling for you. It is a promise that you're going to have food tomorrow and the next day and the next day because your God is kind to you. And it's a promise that in Jesus you have God's presence with you, namely in you right now. What would it look like if we believed that? No more striving, receiving, basking in, marveling, making much of, leaning into all of the privileges of the firstborn. They're yours if you're in Jesus. And if you're not, consider your ways. You have no protection. You have no presence. You have no eternal home that is glorious. Repent and receive him today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we are in the family of the firstborn. That, that's hard to fathom that we're all viewed as firstborns. Thank you, Jesus, for not considering God as something to be held on to, but willingly dying in our place. Help us, Lord, to enjoy you now and to worship you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.